Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpacha's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia, and uh, welcome back to you after your short and successful assignment to the United States. We're happy to see you back and hale and hearty looking. Thank you, Benjamin. The hale and hearty, and I'm happy to be welcome back. I just spent two or three days in a very Israeli corner of America, which was Miami, hundreds of thousands of Israelis there. and just drove yesterday through Miami and it's a very interesting kind of corridor. Along the way, I saw signs of the echoes and reverberations of the cash here over Gaza because there was one enormous billboard quoting Nelson Mandela saying, there'll be no, there's no freedom for us until there's freedom for the Palestinians. So I don't know where I was going through, but obviously the pro-Israel, pro and anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian area, wherever that was. And around Hollywood, the East Coast version. Just north of Miami. Right which is a very Israeli area. The person I was with called it a Moshavai Israeli village or settlement over there. Israeli flags everywhere. And there was these enormous, I saw one at one just place along the highway, saw this enormous building there. I don't know what it was, derelict or some otherwise. They just plastered it with a, a monstrous Israeli flag and then blown up pictures of the hostages saying, we stand with Israel. Talking to Israelis there, they're obviously living from far away, vicariously living what's going on over here. And it was, yeah, again, another reminder that for Ami Israel at the moment, there's really only one cause, Binyama. There's only one thing on the agenda. There's work and there's life and there's other stuff going in. But in the background for everyone, there's this feeling of emergency and feeling of sadness and feeling of life that can't be as normal at the moment. When I come open the news over here, that for one Jew, at least, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he's turning up the heat blaming Israel for what's happening in Gaza, rather, for the humanitarian plight. And what he does, he comments, very direct and troubling comments, he says, Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way on October the 7th. The hostages have been dehumanized every day since, but there cannot be a license to dehumanize others. The overwhelming majority of people in Gaza had nothing to do with the attacks of October the 7th. Families in Gaza whose survival depends on delivery of aid from Israel are just like our families. And so he says, we must not lose sight of their common humanity. And you know, when I see that, I think... What he's doing, he's accusing, he full well knows the Jewish people, the nation of Rachmanim, although he may not know the Gemara that says that. We know that we're not the problem here. Uh, he certainly he doesn't is, know the part that talks about the Jewish people as being Baishanim, because he's obviously not at all embarrassed or afraid to speak a lot of nonsense. Sorry to say, with all due respect to the Secretary of State of America, but the thing that bothered me the most was when he talks about that there's too many people getting killed in Gaza. And all the people of Gaza want is like everybody else is to live their life and make a living and send their kids to school and uh, come back home and maybe uh, have a shawarma sandwich at night and uh, a cup of Turkish coffee. He's so wrong. He has no understanding of how radical this population is. And we know it. I saw a comment on probably was Abu Ali Express today where there was an Israeli soldier who was reporting from Gaza and he was saying that in every single building that we go into, whether it's a school, whether it's a home, whether it's a public building, there's pictures of what they call Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Harbai, the Temple Mount. He said, these people are fighting a religious war. And we understand it. We understand it better than we ever did. But the Secretary of State of the United States seems not to be aware of this or is deliberately hiding it. Either way, it's bad. But you know, we have hard numbers to support that, the overwhelming anecdotal evidence. And those numbers we came up with uh, a few months ago, I'd have to find again, but the survey was done amongst Palestinians themselves in Gaza and in the West Bank, showing a massive majority 
of Palestinians actually support what happened on October the 7th and support Hamas, etc. Their stock has risen tremendously. And this, Binyamin, it's just victim blaming. It's sickening, really. But I think it's more strategic than that, actually, because this is not just the Yufi Nefesh aspect of the American liberal character. It's also part of rhetoric, a chill that has set in months ago in the Biden administration, in which the Biden administration, under the tremendous heat and glare of the Democratic Party's own left wing, turned left and has been done in screws on it, bro. Let's be honest with you, it's part of this whole campaign to set in motion this Palestinian state idea, which is indeed the next part of his speech, because he says, we're going to go for an Israel's in fully integrated into the region with normal relations with key countries, including Saudi Arabia, with firm guarantees for its security alongside a concrete, time-bound, irreversible path to a Palestinian state living side by side, decent security with Israel, the necessary security assurances. What are the necessary security assurances? Can someone please explain exactly what that entails? Deafening silence, because there will be, it's just a load of nonsense, because necessary security assurances, as you say, will someone please explain? No one can explain, because there's simply only one force that Badr Khateva can guarantee the pacification of this violent population, and that is in Israel, because historically, no other outside power, why would an outside power want to take on the job of policing these radicals? running the risk of getting bombed and rocketed and shot at every street corner. Who is going to do this? It's going to be the United States. We know not. It's going to be the European Union. Who is going to the Saudis, the Organization of American, the Conference of South American Banana Republics? It's not happening. As you say, who are these people? It's not going to happen. What this preaching, and it's so preachy and so whiny, to be honest, the tone of this is so, I don't know whether to be shocked or just slightly annoyed by the whole thing as well. It's, yeah, here we go. We're not, the t- we're not the problem over here. And I'd request kindly the Faye Nefesh and the Biden administration, please, it's enough already. We're fighting a difficult war over here. You've given us tremendous aid, but enough of the moralizing. Gedalia, if this was just something that Blinken feels he has to say because he's in the diplomatic community and this is what a diplomat has to do, and they don't always believe what they say, I might cut him at least a little bit of slack. But I read a report earlier this week by Dr. Udi Levy, of the Jerusalem Institute of Strategic Studies. He served 30 years in IDF intelligence, and he's an expert in global finances and foreign policy. And the premise of his report is that even when the U.S. makes claims and says that they're fighting terror and they're placing sanctions on terrorist groups or that they're putting bounties on the heads of terrorist groups for providing information that will assist in their arrest, he says they're not following it up at all. He said it's lip service. And, and these were he, his words. He said it's lip service. He made a couple of main points. It's a lengthy report. I can't uh, take all the time that I'd like to get into it, but he makes uh, three main points. He says that the United States is well acquainted with Hamas's investments, its main financiers, and its financing pipelines, especially the Iranian Qatari ones. And he says, other than proclamations and pronouncements, haven't done anything to actually get their hands on any of that money. Now, what could they do? For example, he says that America is aware that uh, Hezbollah's major vulnerability is its dependence on the Lebanese financial system. But for political reasons, the U.S. refrains from taking the decisive step of cutting Lebanon off from the SWIFT system, which would land a severe blow to Hezbollah. They wouldn't be able to move money back and forth. I think it's important to understand that the thinking going on in the U.S. is that Lebanon is a client state. The U.S. has always made a very awkward distinction that has become increasingly more awkward and more difficult 
to fathom over the years, which is there is a legitimate state called Lebanon, which we engage with. They have the regular old of the state. They have an army. And that army is trained in some ways, I think, propped up by the United States and supported in some way. Besides that, they have this terror group inside that we don't recognize, the Hezbollah is, et cetera. But which has always been this, it's obvious to anyone, the reality is Lebanon is Hezbollah and Hezbollah is Lebanon. They are intertwined. It's difficult to know where one begins and the other ends. And therefore, it's almost like a, a fiction, which we're seeing over here, the inability to cut Lebanon off because it's a legitimate state. We can't do that. No, that's a big mistake because you'll never bring this to an end that way. The same thing when it comes to Qatar and Turkey. Dr. Levy mentioned that the U.S. would have to confront Qatar and Turkey in order, because they're the ones who provide a lot of the fundings for Hamas. They would have to confront Iran in a much stronger way. We know that President Trump had sanctions on economic sanctions on Iran that the Biden administration lifted. The same thing goes for the Houthis. Again, we know who these people are. We know uh, where they keep their money and what they do with it. And uh, he mentioned one other thing, which was interesting. The U.S. always talks about humanitarian aid to Gaza. But Dr. Levy mentioned that the lead group involved in the flow of aid to Gaza is a group called Qatar Charity, a body designated a terrorist organization by both Israel and the United States. And that NGO is part of a charitable coalition that's declared by the American authorities as a terrorist entity. Again, what are they doing about it? They're doing absolutely nothing. And they could put tremendous economic pressure on these terrorist groups, and they could really show that they're helping Israel and that they care. They would only be clamping down on uh, the finances of very evil people. And there's no reason to allow such people to uh, have such access to the uh, international financial system. And then I'm going to bring back uh, the phrase that I like to uh, use every once in a while. It would also show some moral clarity to American foreign policy. And that's completely absent from, from this entire picture. But yeah, I mean, I just like to complete, we've had talk about what they call in British journalism, they call the Vox Pop. Is that a phrase in American media? Not precisely, but I, I know where you're driving. In British media, they talk about sending out the street level, sending out the cup report to get a Vox Pop. That means literally to... Yeah, the man on the to, street. The man on the street, but they actually call it the form of journalism. And I think we've all been doing that in conversations with average Israelis. And one that I recently had actually on the way back from the airport was with the average Israeli taxi driver, who is, as we know, is the, a figure of great reverence in many ways. And he was telling me, and I think I agree with him, he says, look, we talk about what's going to happen on the northern border, where there's still a tremendous number of troops, and there's very tense standoff, or rather skirmishes and daily fighting with Hezbollah, an attempt to drive them off the northern border. And it may be that we won't go to war immediately, but he was saying, and I think I tend to agree, it's just a question of time. It's months or it's within a year. There's no way we can allow these people out. And so the working assumption of most Israelis is that maybe they may not be able to verbalize it in that way. We're not in an Israel-Gaza war. I think we've said it over here. It's the Israel-Iranian proxy war, which is this is what's going on over here. And while attention is focused mostly on the South, they start the fighting carries on and the hunt for Yichia Sinwa and the end game, never trying to rescue whoever's left of those hostages after the Israeli government has confirmed that many of them are not with us. As all of that ensues, and obviously as the administration, world pressure ramps up, as we said, to create a Palestinian state, the eyes of average Israelis are aware that this is, is very far from over and that we may wind down this round of fighting with people being going home, Benyama, to people going on the north, and they may go home to massive sort of concrete barriers in front of their homes if they're exposed to the border with large number of tanks next to their homes. 
And who knows, it could be that we're not going to come to some clear end. But I think the sense is, we're just at the beginning, we're in the middle of something, we're not any further. And it's not a comforting sense, but it's a reality that a new normal has set in. I still think that Israel would prefer to wrap things up in Gaza before they focus on the North, so they don't have to fight a two-front war at the same time. We've heard a lot of reports in the last couple of days that Israel is going into Rafah big time. And that's supposedly the last major bastion of Hamas that's left in the Gaza Strip. It's also the last area where there's a tremendous civilian support for Hamas, despite what Secretary of State Blinken might think. It's not so that all those people there just want a good life. They'd rather destroy Israel. And for them, that's their version of a good life. And then after that, once Israel can take care of Gaza and at least get it to the point where it's under our control, then we can turn our eyes to the north. But events sometimes dictate to us rather than us dictating events. Gedali, I'd just like to wrap up, if I may, that I wouldn't necessarily say this is good news. In fact, it's not good news. But I was heartened by the show of support in my neighborhood, the Arnona Old Talpiot neighborhood of Jerusalem, for a couple of young men who lost their lives and went to their final resting place this week. One of them is David Shakuri. He happened to have lived in Rehovot, but his father, Sasson, is the owner of the Makholet that I go into on a regular basis here around the corner from me. I paid a shiva call today. It's as sad as it gets. And he's trying to be a gibor, but you can see he's a broken man. And this is your tough Israeli Sabra, probably a man in his 60s, and he's probably been through a lot in his life, but it's just an awful thing. And there's also another young man named Khanan Drori, who, whose family lives around the corner from me. And literally around the corner, I can see their building when I look out my Mirpeset window. And yesterday they had in this area, what they try to do, and certainly in the Dati Lumi community, is they try to get as many people as possible coming and waving flags before the family is going to head off to the Levaya. And uh, I saw people getting off buses uh, all over the area. I couldn't go yesterday because I had someplace else I had to be at that time, but I happened to be driving by at the time. And just to see people streaming off the buses with their flags and coming from all over Yerushalayim and probably all over this area to show their support for these families was very sad, but at one time also heartening because it shows we care. As you say this, I'm reminded that one way to measure if you go around England, I'm sure if you go around America as well, many small towns and villages, if you'll see the World War II memorials, in England there's the World War I memorials actually that are more dominant. It made more of an impression on the country. In Israel, I've been struck by the fact that you can measure the wars in terms of the shuls. Many old shuls in Tel Aviv were founded in 1948 and they founded the names like Burat Israel and Yad Lis and Yad Deh and they're a memory of those and they list all those who fell in the, from that area and the, the war of independence. And then you go through, it's like archaeological strata. You can go through the shuls and say, this was the 1967 shul and this was the 1973 shul and this was the 1982 Shlomo Galil shul. And these were the ones from the first into the second into father, whatever it was. And what we're seeing here is a creation of a new generation of those who have fallen. And the Israel that's with the Pasuk says, which was obviously translated into the name, people's names memorialized in spiritual things and in shuls, etc. And I have no doubt that we're going to start seeing this as well. But it's a reminder, you know, and I think that we're not just fighting with material means. Sal Israel, that people, your average neighborhood Makolet men, the Amcha, the good people of the Jewish people, honest to good Jewish people out there who've given their best, given their sons to defend Am Yisrael, 
they recognize that ultimately we've got to preserve this in a spiritual way. That is itself an achama that we know it's not for nothing. With that, Binyamin, I want to sign out. It's obviously a sad episode. Anyway, I want to wish you and to listeners everywhere and to all of our Israel a Shabbos of Nechama and a good and healthy Shabbos. <laughs>